0: Let's go.
1: This is one of my favorite Seth quotes. This is a deep one. People don't believe what you tell them. They rarely believe what you show them. They often believe what their friends tell them. They always believe what they tell themselves. There is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. And free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk. All so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit hubspot.com/service to learn more. Hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your show for marketing-minded people everywhere. I'm your host, Kit Bodner. I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Kieran Flanagan. And do we have a show for you today? We are talking about a new segment today on Marketing Against the Grain. We're calling it Timeless Advice. So we're taking the best marketing advice throughout history, and we are going to frame it up for you of why that is still relevant and what will always be relevant. And every time we're gonna talk about advice from one specific person. Today, we're talking timeless advice from Seth Godin, the godfather of marketing, one of the true pioneers of marketing. I've got some nuggets of wisdom, Kieran, I know you do. Are you ready for this or what?
0: I'm ready for this. Actually, I was thinking when you were introducing the Timeless Advice series, we should do one just on ads from the
1: 1920s. Have you ever oh, seen any yes. of the old,
0: old school ads with the Gillette with the baby holding the razor? And it's like, so <laughs> <laughs> things that you could just never do today.
1: But at the same time, they're brilliant, right? They're incredible. They were highly differentiated. And there are principles you can still take from those ads that work today, right? You couldn't do the exact same crazy ads
0: you can do the creative, but actually the psychology behind them is still the exact same.
1: So the next one of this list, let's definitely do ads from the 1920s. The 1920s, we'll put amazing. on like, little hats, we'll drink whiskey. You're going to have a top hat on? I've actually, you know my Bitmoji. You, you do have a top hat in your Bitmoji. I've always wondered, why is that? Why do you have a top hat in your Bitmoji? <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> elegant,
0: Kieran. It's like Kieran just like with a whiskey telling people what the latest data reports are. It's like, I used to always use Bitmoji to describe data when I was presenting to like exact yes. meetings in HubSpot and it really caught on.
1: You basically give everybody a free presentation tip right now. Always use emojis.
0: Your chart is going down the wrong way. But if you put a little Bitmoji, people are like, ah, like things are totally screwed, but like there's a cool little Bitmoji there.
1: <laughs> That's bitmoji. hilarious. All right, Kieran, so let's go into some advice from Seth. I think you and I kind of go back to his advice very frequently. You know, we'll go back and we'll WhatsApp about it. Start us all off with your favorite piece of advice from Seth Go.
0: Okay. So there's a couple I think are that are really relevant to me right now. And so one of the ones I like is be simple, not dumb, because you and I talk <laughs> oh, about this a lot. That
1: is so and good. you can
0: mix the two things up, right? There's really famous lyrics in Jay-Z's song where he's like, I have to dumb down my lyrics to bring in the dollars. But he's basically saying like, you all can't understand
1: me. I'm too smart for you.
0: My rap lyrics, the metaphors I use far too smart. So I'll dumb it down to get some dollars, but actually there's a real difference between being simple and dumb. And simple is a skill you need to learn. And I'll give you a little example that I was describing to someone recently this week. So when you're in a company, There's like three layers, I think, of narrative that you need to excel at. So the first layer is like the team narrative. And so team narrative is when you're a small company, you probably remember this from the days when you originally joined HubSpot. It's really like everyone speaks the same language because you're all in one giant team. People understand the way the business works. People understand the nomenclature. People understand the metrics. You can kind of talk in your special little team lingo, right? And everyone kind of understands it. And then you grow up and you become maybe a 500 person company, an 800 person company. And actually you elevate to like, you have the team lingo, which is really for your team, but now you're working much more cross-functionally. And so you need a new narrative to be able to describe your work in a way where people who are still very technical can understand the narrative that you were trying to tell. Like every presentation, every data, it's always the story that matters. And so then you get up to the exec level, right? You're a large company. You're presenting to an ex, exec. Data doesn't matter. The story matters. And most execs do not know the in-depth workings of what you do. So you have to describe it in a very like simplistic way. And so you, you go from team to cross team to execs, you have to get better and better at distilling down your work into a very simple story. And that takes a real skill. That takes like real hard work. And that to me is one of the best ways that I can use to kind of simple, not dumb for people who listen to this podcast to think about, wow, that's a skill I want to learn because I want to be in a room with execs, founders, even if you're trying to raise money from VCs. And so that's my like, why that really connects with me is simple, not dumb. Simple is a real skill that you need to learn to be successful really
1: in anything you do. First of all, awesome advice. Second of all, I had a complete tangent because you were doing all that. And one of the times, right before you said execs, you said exes, and you said like a presentation to your ex. And I was like, I was <laughs> yeah. so like, Jared, talk to me about how that goes. Like, you get the PowerPoint up, and you're yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, this is what why you ruined our relationship.
0: <laughs> I, look, it's not working. I've done a whole presentation. I've used Mid Journey to create some really great graphics of us as like cartoon characters and like cyberpunks. And I just want to explain to you where this all went wrong. <laughs>
1: it's That's actually a great way to interpretation of. You know what?
0: maybe you should build a, a platform where like people can break up with the people through incredible presentations. There you go. Uh, if you're going to build that business, let's go. I'll, I'll put it
1: through capital. So I just spent the last like three minutes while you were talking about that, just thinking about like, how, how would you just do like a nice yeah. PowerPoint to your ass? I'm telling you, like, let's all grow up a little bit. And that's the way we should uh, break up with each other. But in all seriousness, <laughs> back to like the simplification point. The one thing I would add is if you see somebody who's trying to communicate all of the deep details of their work, it's because they're insecure. Most people think you can show your intelligence by showing all the details when the exact opposite is true, right? right. The best way to show your intelligence is the simplest articulation of these complex things. That's why like if you're watching any sport, I don't care if it's swimming, golfing, basketball, soccer, what have you, the best people in the world make it look effortless, Right. right? They put so much work in that you're like, oh, I could do that. That doesn't look hard. And you're like, no, 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 that is incredibly hard. They just make it look incredibly easy. And that is exactly what you want your marketing to feel like. You want somebody to be like, oh, I get it immediately. That's so simple. You don't want people to be like, oh man, they must be really smart because they used all these fancy words that I don't understand.
0: That's the perfect analogy is to sports people because certain people you watch you are like, ah, uh, you know, if I had to just spend a little bit more of my youth doing this thing, then <laughs> totally. I could have been as good as that. And then you're like, you, look, you, know, you look at Messi and you're like, ah, you know, a couple more Saturdays on the soccer fix, <laughs> <laughs> just maybe. And then you realize, no, you're he's like, a no, god. There, uh, no, there, was, there
1: was no chance ever. Yeah,
0: there was no chance.
1: All right, all right. I got, I got a piece of advice for you. Ready? Let's this go. This is one of my favorite Seth quotes to share. This is a deep one. People don't believe what you tell them. They rarely believe what you show them. They often believe what their friends tell them. They always believe what they tell themselves. Yeah. People don't believe what you tell them, which means like, hey, we're, we're better. We're the best at this problem you're trying to solve. They're unlikely to believe it. They rarely believe what you show them. So like, you might have a great customer case study about how awesome your product is. And they'll be like, eh, they just got that company to do that. I don't know if I actually believe them they often believe what their friends tell them, which means like, oh, if they have a peer, give them a recommendation, that has a high level of trust. The thing that they always believe is what they tell themselves. Mm. And what they tell themselves is based on how they feel. Right. And this is advice all about your marketing has to be emotional, not logical, Right. right? Because you need to help people tell themselves the story you want them to tell themselves about your product, about your business, about your brand. And to me, this is the best articulation of marketing, which is like, showing is better than telling. Peer recommendations and word of mouth is way better than showing. And the best thing you can do is combine those things, but with a real emotional story to get people to believe that they want to be a part of your company, be a part of your brand, right? And that the emotional side of marketing is incredibly important. And on a lot of the shows recently, we've talked a lot about AI, technology, how things are changing. One of the through lines that, Kieran, I know you and I both believe is that emotion and telling great stories is going to become way more important in the next era of marketing than it has ever been before. And it's always been incredibly important. But this change of the technology landscape and the commoditization of things like education and everything with AI is going to mean that emotion is going to be at the forefront of great marketing.
0: Right. And I think the kind of emotion that you and I agree on is non-convoluted emotions. let me describe what I mean by that. There another Wait. lesson from Seth. This isn't one of mine, but actually it's a good way to kind of riff on this is he had a really great line. Authenticity is overrated. Yes. Right. There's a tendency, especially among writers and brands to act the way that they think that they have to act, right? Yes. As a tactic. And basically that they are trying to present a version of themselves in the way that they think that audience wants them to act and behave. And one of the things that Seth kind of teaches is you need to be useful, right? You need to have a clearer point of view. Your stories need to connect to the reader, not just to make them feel good about themselves. I think that's a good point to debate because a lot of marketing is how do you make that person feel good about themselves? Because how do you help them to see them be a better version of themselves if they use your product. And I think what Seth is arguing is be honest. There's a difference between being honest and authentic. And brands, for the most part, try to be a version of themselves that they think the reader or the consumer wants them to be. And I think he's arguing that actually, instead of trying to do the kind of authentic thing, actually try to be helpful, like actually have a real point of view, actually do something useful. But the last line is kind of interesting, which is not just make you feel good about yourself.
1: I got another Seth quote that kind of, I think answers that for you. You ready for this one? People don't want what you make. They want the way it will make them feel. Right. And there aren't that many feelings to choose from. You don't have to make people feel good, but there's not that many emotions. right? Yeah, like yeah. That's, <laughs> the, that's the point. It's, it's like, point yeah, that. you don't always have to do the thing to make people feel good. You can make them feel right. happy. You can make them feel sad. You can make them feel angry. There's a lot of ways to drive people to action, but there's also a very finite list of those emotions, right? And so that's what I would say. It's like marketers sometimes over-focus on a positive emotion without actual focusing on really understanding what would make that customer happy, right. right? Like if you want to make somebody happy, that's great. But like truly what is going to make them happy and it normally is not what you're doing in your marketing and how you're packaging your product and and all of those things. Yeah. Another piece of advice that I think is awesome that I want to share with you, Karen, which is a very simple one. If failure is not an option then neither is success. And this is something that marketers get wrong every day. I'm going to say it again. If failure is not an option, then neither is success, which means if you don't take risk, you're not really going to get a reward, right? And marketers all the time are trying to do the safe, predictable thing. And you know what the safe, predictable things leads to? Very small, crappy results. Every time. Like you you and I know the best results we've ever come up with in, in our time working together has always been when we took real risk. Like, hey, we don't know if this is going to work. This could be a complete failure. We could waste all this time and money. We do not know. But we know if it does work, it's going to have huge upside for us. If you do not have a marketing strategy that is predicated with at least some parts of it that involve real risk-taking, then you're never actually going to achieve, you know, step function results and really change the path of your business.
0: I'll add to that. I do think that there is another kind of thread to pull there, which is you need to earn the right to take risks. So let me give you an example. If you are going into a a new year and you're like, there's three things I can do. And they are all brand new things. They are all somewhat risky things. They are all things that you have no historical context to tell you whether like there's a meaningful chance of this thing working. Then you're adding a ton of risk to the overall business because you've undertaken things that, potentially none of them will work, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there's a way to look at this like a portfolio manager, which is you need to have some of your investment in not sure things, but things that you have a high degree of confidence in that can help drive impact for the business. Yeah, And then you need to have a certain portion of that investment in those riskier bets. And that kind of delineation or that mm-hmm. split between safe fish, like your bonds and your equities, changes as the company grows, right? If you're a seed stage company, your series A stage company, everything is kind of in the risk bucket because it's all brand new. And as you actually mature, hopefully there's some things you've figured out, but you always want to be layering on some sort of bets that are much more risky, things that you haven't done before. And I think where companies stagnate is when they are just doing the same things over and over again and just trying to like Get the iteration, squeeze a little bit out of those things.
1: Well, I agree with that. But I, I want to ask you a follow up question that you are uniquely suited to answer on the topic of risk. There are a lot of people who hear this and they're like, I, I can't take risk, man. My boss isn't going to be okay with it. I'm new in this job. Our company's having trouble. You're new in a job. You are a brand new CMO. How are you thinking about taking risk? You know, you've got a brand new team of people, you've got a new boss, you're in this new situation. Like. How do you think about walking into that new situation, in your case at Zapier, and saying, like, hey, this is how I think about how much risk should be part of my overall marketing mix?
0: So I would think about it this way, right? I actually, if I was in a position to never take risk and always make sure fire wins, I would actually be pretty happy doing that. True. Like why why wouldn't I take the kind of sure fire wins? Like life is much, much easier.
1: Yeah, there's just not that many of those.
0: There's not that many of those, right? And so you have to have a business or or, or a founder and a team that understand, actually we do need to invest in net new things because we have a predictable enough model that we can see in like a year, two year, three years, some of this stuff is going to start to plateau. We need to find the new kind of S-curves to layer on. So I think the first thing is like, do you work for a business where that kind of understanding is built within the kind of founder and the team that needs to support you? So in Zapier, that is true, right? Zapier are a company that Mm -hmm. understand that they continually, if they want to be the company they want to be, have to find new ways of finding growth. And so then it just comes down to that balance. And the reason I use that balance example is because that's what I think about right now is like, I don't want to put everything into like the risk bucket. I need to figure out like, what is the right delineation between the kind of, oh, we can squeeze some more stuff out of this, better execution, better alignment, better resources, whatever it may be. But actually we need to have like one or two new things working. And so that's why I'm thinking about it. Do I know what those things are? No, Kip, because I like go through onboarding and try to remember those times. It is like, well, oh, I don't know anything. It's kind of cool, but also like, I don't know anything. So.
1: All right. Well, we're, well, in a couple months, we're going to check in back with you on, on all this stuff. We just wanted to get a, a fresh marketing leader's perspective on taking risks. All right. Before we go to our last couple of listens from Seth, I want to remind everybody that Kieran and I, we're here. We're working every week to pump out some great, great free content for you. The way you could show us your appreciation is hit that subscribe button on the YouTube. Especially do it today because Kieran is wearing a very controversial sweater. The last time Kieran wore this sweater. No, it was a different one. No, I thought this was the one that somebody said no. I almost stopped watching the video because of Kieran's sweater.
0: You know what I do. I get I get one version and then I just get every single like version of that jumper.
1: So hit subscribe and drop in the comments what you think of Kieran's sweater today and make sure it's one. acceptable. My acupuncturist said this was an awesome jumper. <laughs> I don't know if acupuncturists are also the, the peak style experts, but whatever. Oh, yeah, but but seriously, your like kind of donation back to us would be subscribing. If you watch more than one episode, we would love for you to subscribe. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge, is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. And now, Kieran, I want to get back right into the topic, which is give me your next piece of advice that you really love from Seth.
0: There's a couple of ways I can go, but I'm going to go to something that you and I have talked about a lot. Let's and go. I will say that I don't think we're good at it. And I don't think anyone's <laughs> good at it in tech, right? So I want to talk about things on like, bad. I want to be, be honest when I, you know, say there's some of the stuff that I don't think we've nailed either. And Seth had this great thing, and this is really top of mind for me right now, which is know when to quit. And oh, it's from his book, I'm The so Dip, bad
1: at this. right? Yeah.
0: And he's like, there's kind of two quitting points, and I love this distinction that he makes, which is you have like a dip, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. things get hard, and that is a terrible time to quit, right? Because it doesn't mean the thing is wrong, it doesn't mean the thing cannot be successful. It just means it's hard. Yeah. And if you have like meaningful conviction in that thing, it is worth working through those hard times. But sometimes it is just the right time to quit because you have reached a dead end. And you and I know probably not from just the companies we've worked in, but the companies we advise, what actually happens is like you hit the dip and people are just like, oh, I'll keep doing it. And I'll add on something new. Oh, I'll hit the dip here. I'll keep doing it. I'll add on something new. And you just end up with this array of stuff. Yeah, And like in there is some of the things that are working, but in there are some of the things that are just like being kind of pulled along that are not making meaningful impact or not growing in a meaningful way. And I think if you look at a lot of tech companies' data in terms of where their revenue comes from, sales teams perform, all of these different things, you'll see that there's just a lot of the actual good things come from a smaller amount of things than you think. And that's because we are not good in tech at understanding or making the tough choice to say, this is a thing I'm going to wind down. We always just add on. And I think that's a great, Timely lesson for me, and I think a great lesson for anyone who listens to this podcast. Well,
1: I love that. I would say, Kieran, you and I, I would say a lot of the arguments we've had over the years were about stopping things. Should we stop stop things? things? And really, the main argument is like, we are not stopping enough, right? To your point. It's like the best companies, the best leaders, the best marketers get really good at stopping things that are low value. What happens is like the obvious things that don't work, it's easy to stop those. It's the things that kind of work a little bit. That's it. We get a little value from this thing. And it's, you know, it's not that hard. It doesn't cost that much money. So we'll just keep doing it. When reality, the the complexity and cost of lack of focus is much higher than we all think. Right. And that's like, I think the point Seth's trying to make here. And so I, I think if you want one of like, one actionable thing from today's show is like, go and look at your marketing mix or your, your business strategy. And just, can you pick one thing that you can stop doing? And just stop doing one thing. And then so that you even understand the value of getting back focus, reducing coordination costs, operational overhead, all of those things, right? Pick one thing. And if you stop doing one thing in a couple of months, you'll probably be like, wow, that had a bigger impact than I thought. Maybe I should stop doing a couple more things, right? And then it becomes this really powerful snowball of simplification. Yeah,
0: to your point, the things that keep going are the things that have not completely failed but are yes. not huge successes, but they're in there somewhere in the middle of, you know, adding a little bit to your business. And you're like, well, there's not a lot of downside to me keeping this on, but the downside is really the hidden complexity. Like it just adds totally. a ton of complexity and complexity kills businesses. I couldn't agree more.
1: All right, I I got one more for you that I want to share. It's a simple one. It's why I love being a marketer, but I think it's something that we forget a lot. And it is marketers make things better by making change happen. Marketers make things better by making change happen. Marketing is always the catalyst for change in my mind. It is always the team within an organization that should be leading the way and should be ahead of where the rest of the organization is going and should be lighting a path forward of future change for your customers, right? At HubSpot, we did that by creating inbound marketing and preaching the good word of inbound marketing. Then we did it with product-led growth. We did a lot of big elements of change to basically facilitate change, not for ourselves, but for the entire community of prospects and customers and businesses that we serve. So I love this one, Kieran. I think marketers are the change agents in businesses. Do you agree? I
0: do agree. So part of a marketer's job can be broken into two parts, to change perception that people have about your business, like be able to like change the perception they have about your business or change the perception they have about a problem and like fit the company as a solution. Mm-hmm. Or it's to be able to insert themselves into the conversation for people who already know they need a solution like yours. But a lot of the hard work is in the part where they're trying to get the people whose mind has to be reframed around how they understand that problem that you solve. And that to me is the chain makers. And most companies should always be on the edge of the go-to-market, right? Like it's why totally. if you're in... AI or any kind of, if you're in any go-to-market team and you're not interested in AI, it's kind of like being in an office when the computers come out and not being interested in a computer. Like marketers <laughs> should be super interested in AI for two reasons, because it's not only going to change how they do their job, it's going to change how people think about the solutions that they want to get. And so you need to understand like how to communicate to customers in a different way when they start to think about AI as like... oh. I need some sort of solution with AI as a component or how do I actually do my job? So I agree. I think marketers are change makers. That change usually comes through stories. And we kind of talked about the importance of stories.
1: Look, I completely agree with that. The last thing I would say on this is that if you facilitate change, then you have to be a learn-it-all. You have to just be obsessed with learning because learning is where you discover change and discover the need to do things differently or do things in a new way. Right. And so if you are doing marketing and you are are not a learner at all, you need to shift your mindset into like, how do I actually build a growth mindset, a learning mindset? And if you're on a team with other people that don't have that mindset, you need to push them to get there because you can't be the leader and drive that change without that fundamental ability to learn. Right. All right. You got one more for us? I'll leave
0: with this one because I think this is a good reminder for all of us. Please. Impatience is not a strategy. (laughs) Innovation is essential, but innovation isn't lazy. It takes insight and patience and experience to bring a new solution to an old problem. Impatience is not a strategy. I think that's a good reminder for all of us who try to like speed run and front run everything. Like... There is a ton of value in being thoughtful and having time to think. I used to say this to my team, the team that I've managed, or I always try to say this to people. is like, having thinking time in your calendar is a good thing. It is not like, oh my God, like I have extra additional time here. I need to fill it with like busy work. I think all of us could, use additional time to actually think and be patient and be thoughtful about the things we want to do. So I love that reminder, you know, the busy people, the people who are frantic, doesn't mean that they actually have any real strategy. And usually it means actually they don't have a strategy. totally does. They're just kind of reacting.
1: What I would build on is like, you are what you celebrate. And one of the things, Kieran, like if I think back of our time working together, you know, the thing I think you and I celebrated the most, we celebrated two things. We celebrated like when we figured out a breakthrough that was really going to work, but that was not the thing we celebrated the most. The thing we celebrated the most was that we would grind it out more than anybody else would. Do the work. We'll be like, hey, we have figured this out and now we are just going to do it day in and day out and grind this out day after day, month after month, year after year until we just have a crazy unfair advantage against everybody. And we would always WhatsApp and Slack and everything back and forth about just like, we'd just be like grinding it out. You know, like, i right. like, like.
0: The best work is the born work.
1: Yeah, well, the best work is like, hey, I know this work is going to work and it just has to right. get done. And grind, I have the discipline grind, to do it, right? And grind. I know that my competition, I know that other people out there don't have that discipline that I have to go and get it done, Yeah, right? And so if you are not successful in a way that you want to be right now and you're watching this, it's because of one of two reasons. One, you're spending all your time doing the wrong thing. Like the thing you're doing isn't high impact or more likely you are not grinding it enough. Even on the show, Kieran, like you and I, like we are grinding, we are, we're, we're doing the work of like <laughs> Super research, prep, Iteration. like setting up video setups, like Learning. all everything you could possibly imagine. And we know it takes years of grinding and that is what you have to do.
0: Yeah. I'll leave it with this. There's another great quote from Seth, which is, uh, sometimes you just need to do it again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that's so brilliant. But that is so yeah. brilliant. What is the number one thing you hear from people in teams? We tried that already. Right, right? we tried
0: that already. Yeah, oh, it doesn't work. We worry. tried
1: that already. I am so sick of hearing we've tried that already. It happens all the time. It's like you have this preconceived bias of like we tried this once. And it's like, I kind of want to be like, do you think that that one time we did this thing, that we did it absolutely perfectly, that we had the best people in the whole world on it, that we completely understood the problem, The probability of that for anybody is like zero. Right. You know, like it's not true. So trying it again and being open that something that didn't work 6, 12, 18, 24 months ago could work today is a superpower when it comes to marketing.
0: Yeah, well, talent changes and technology changes. And so things you tried in the past doesn't mean they're not going to work in the future because I come back to like some of the real early like HubSpot marketing tactics. And one of them was HubSpot TV. (laughs) And- totally. It was so ahead of its time. And it was way ahead of its time, right? It was a YouTube show. Like, imagine you were like sitting there and going, okay, we've tried YouTube. (laughs) We tried YouTube once, so, you know.
1: Yeah. (laughs) spot TV, you know, it didn't work, so we're just never going to do YouTube again. We'd be
0: idiots. What happens is people change, or your audience change in terms of their consumption habits. Yes. You change in terms of the talent you get into can do things technology changes. And I always think that you can say that this is not worth doing right now, like for a period of time until something changes. Either we don't have the right talent, yes. either we'll wait until there's a technology breakthrough or wait through like there's a change in behavior in consumers, but everything can potentially work again in the future if something else changes.
1: I love that. I couldn't agree more. It's the right note to go out on. Drop a comment here on YouTube if you like this show. If you like this format, this Timeless Classics, we're testing out a new format of show today. If you like it, drop us a comment. If there's things you want to see done differently, let us know. And we'll be back with you real soon on Marketing Against the Green.